Escape Pod 240 May 12, 2010 Today's story, The Last McDougals, by David D. Levine. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. I'm gonna miss saying that. The welcome to Escape Pod part, I mean. I can still say I'm Steve Ely. That's not gonna change. So, appropriately enough, we've got a story for you this week about change. About the world moving on. About celebrating what's gone before about passing the torch and finding the courage together to face the future, and most importantly and most poignantly, about fast food. We present The Last McDougals by David D. Levine. Mr. Levine lives in Oregon and has had stories published in pretty much every major market. He won the Hugo Award in 2006 for a story, tick, 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 which we ran here on Escape Pod. If I ever need a resume for audio engineering, topping my bullet list will be effectively edited a narration for an alien language without vowels. Levine also edits a nifty little fanzine, Bento, with his wife Kate Yule. We'll have the link to that in the show notes. So, one last time, I said a double cheeseburger, onion rings, and a large orange story time. The Last McDougals by David D. Levine The teenage girl's horns were grandiose and ornate, twin tornadoes of bone spiraling down the sides of her face. The color of old ivory, they darkened toward the tip with the patina of frequent handling. In fact, she was rubbing the point of the right horn between her grimy thumb and forefinger as she entered, the old man holding the door open for her like a courtier. She ignored him, glowering at the floor. Watching her from behind the counter, Garth wondered again why someone who could afford a set of horns like that would wear such grubby, tattered clothing. It was the look these days, but it made no sense to him. As the old man came in, letting the door close gently behind him, an expression came over his face that Garth had seen many times before, a compound of misty nostalgia and appalled astonishment. His gaze swept across the yellow and orange fiberglass chairs, their cracks and dings lovingly but visibly repaired, the plastic-topped tables with the white half-moons rubbed by millions of elbows, the light softly shining from the satiny steel of the napkin and ketchup dispensers. Finally, the old man's eyes stopped dead on the smiling face of the six-foot-tall fiberglass cow that stood at the end of the counter, wearing an apron and a chef's hat. "'My God!' he said. It's Moogle McDougal. It certainly is, said Garth. Welcome to McDougal's. May I take your order? Give me a minute, he replied as he perused the menu. He had a comfortable old boot of a voice, rough but mellow. It's been, geez, thirty years since I've been in one of these places. Um, I'll have a double cheeseburger, a small order of fries, and... He grinned. And a shake. Chocolate. Yes, sir. And for the young lady? At that, the girl with the horns raised her eyes from the floor to Garth's face. Blue eyes burned through stringy blonde bangs at him, an icy fire that said she'd rather die than speak to some geezer in a polyester uniform and paper hat. She turned away, revealing a third horn that curled down from the shaven back of her head. "'What do you have, pet?' said the old man. "'I'm buying.' "'I told you not to call me that,' she said, still facing away from both of them. 
I'm sorry. Petrol. No, I hate that name. It's Rack. The man shrugged at Garth, who smiled back in sympathy. Very well. Rack. What would you like to eat? I don't care. The old man drew in a breath, a line appearing between his eyebrows. But then he paused and let the breath out slowly. She'll have the same, he said quietly. So that's two double cheeseburgers, two small fries, and two chocolate shakes. Would you like hot apple pie for dessert? Uh, better not. Oh, what the hell. Sure. Two hot apple pies. That'll be one ninety-eight ninety-two. Plastic or print? Print, he said, and pressed his thumb against the pad on the counter. The ancient cash register beeped. A solid, reassuring sound, Garth thought. So much nicer than the soft insinuations of more modern machines. And Garth gave the man a curled paper receipt. He looked at it in wonder. I thought McDougal's went out of business a long time ago. The corporation went under in 25. Some of the independent franchisees kept going for a while, but as far as I know, this is the only one left anywhere. My dad became the sole owner of the trademark in 36, and we've been working since then to restore this place to the way it was when it opened in 1993. May I have your name, sir? Dan. The old man looked around. You've done a good job with the restoration. I could almost forget BSE and BIS ever happened. Garth shook his head. It wasn't mad cows that killed McDougal's. It was Omnilink and ten-dollar gasoline. Dan gave a rueful snort. Like we'll ever see gas that cheap again. Don't I know it. Garth stepped away from the cash register. Please take a seat, sir. I'll call your name when your order's ready. The man's face quirked in amusement at that. At three in the afternoon, he and the girl were the only customers in the place. Garth shrugged an acknowledgment of the absurdity of the situation and gestured them toward a table. The forms had to be followed. As they seated themselves, Garth fired up the grill. Once upon a time, there would have been a staff, burgers wrapped and ready, fries waiting in bags. He would have had the order bagged by the time the man's wallet was back in his pocket. But today, there were no wallets, and Garth himself cooked the food to order. Slower, but better. More in tune with the tempo of the times. Garth peeked at the underside of each burger before flipping it, making sure it was just right. Out-of-town customers were a rarity in these days of Omnilink, home fuel cells, and microbots. Most folks didn't go much farther from their homes than walking distance. Why should they? Anyone could have employment, entertainment, and community without ever leaving home. Dan? Garth called when the order was ready. Two big, greasy burgers steamed gently on their white paper jackets. Two bags of fries sizzled fresh from the fat. Pearls of moisture condensed on the sides of two paper cups. Garth had arranged them like gifts on a brown plastic tray whose basket-weave pattern was worn almost to invisibility. Presentation was so important. Dan came to the counter and received his order with wonder and delight. It's perfect, he said, inhaling the aroma of grilled beef that rose from the tray. Just the way I remember it. The only thing that's missing is McDougal's printed all over everything. I looked into having some more printed up, but printing is so expensive these days. It's a dying art, Dan acknowledged. Cloth napkins in the dispenser over there. I'll bring out your pies in a minute. Thank you, he said, and carried the tray back to the table where the girl, Rack, slouched in her seat. Thank you, he said, and carried the tray back to the table where the girl, Rack, slouched in her seat. Garth cleaned up the grill while he waited for the pies to warm. Over the low hiss of the LP gas oven, he could hear the man and the girl. 
not enough to make out the words, but the emotions behind them were plain. The man's voice was gentle, cheerful, maybe a little cajoling. The teenager's was sullen, unresponsive, bitter. Garth shook his head as he scraped at the grill. It was a song he'd heard before, from his own two children when they were her age, but this rendition was a lot harsher, a lot more strident. The same Omnilink and ten-dollar gasoline that had killed McDougal's kept families isolated from each other and cooped up together all day, so kids rebelled harder than previous generations ever had. Omnilink games were no substitute for skateboarding with friends when it came to blowing off steam. Of course, even today there were good kids and bad. Jessie, one of Garth's grandkids, had gotten herself a pair of horns, but they were cute little ones, and she kept herself clean and dressed decently. This kid, Rack as she called herself, had really gone overboard with the horns, and her filthy rags looked like she'd been sleeping rough for a month. But still, his heart went out to her. He'd been a hellion himself at her age. If his dad hadn't forced him to straighten up and work hard, just like he did with all the other employees at the restaurant, God knows where he would have ended up. The timer beeped, and Garth pulled the pies out of the oven. They were brown and crisp, and a delicate aroma of apples and cinnamon rose from them. He placed them in white paper boxes, not quite the same as the curved originals, but as close as he could come, and brought them out to Dan on a tray. Dan had polished off his burger and fries, and was noisily finishing his shake. The girl was missing, her burger barely nibbled. Garth raised an eyebrow at the empty chair. Dan said, She's in the bathroom. Quite a lady, that one. She's a handful, all right. You're a granddaughter? A grandniece, kind of. My late husband's granddaughter. She's all I have left of him. She's more like him than her mother ever was. That's why she and I put up with each other, I guess. As he talked, he absently tore the french fry bag into strips, rolling each strip into a hard little ball. She and her parents are just about ready to kill each other, so I took out a second mortgage to take her on a cross-country drive. I figured it would help to show her something outside of her Omnilink unit in her mother's kitchen garden. But it's a lot like taking a cat to the vet. It's for her own good, but she doesn't like it one bit. He found a tiny scrap of french fry at the bottom of the bag, crunched it between his teeth. Damn, those are good. Beef tallow and the frying oil. That's the secret. And the burgers. All beef? All beef and all local. My brother-in-law raises them. Beef? The girl stood rooted in the aisle, halfway back from the bathroom. Apparently the horns did not interfere with her hearing. Those burgers are made out of cows? They're hamburgers, said Dan. Of course they're made out of cows. I know what a hamburger is said Rack, ticking off the ingredients on her fingers. Bun, pickle, onion, ketchup, wasabi, soy, gluten, no beef! Her blue eyes bulged. Oh my God, I ate some! I'm going to be sick! She turned and ran back into the bathroom. Dan turned a panicked face to Garth. His expression told Garth exactly what he was thinking. The world has changed and left me behind. Garth had felt that expression on his own face more and more since he'd turned sixty. The two men walked quickly to the door of the bathroom. Harsh, liquid sounds came from the other side. Rack, honey? Dan called through the door. It's perfectly safe. There hasn't been any BSE or BIS in this country since... 2037, said Garth. Since you were a baby. I don't care! It's disgusting! Her voice was distorted. Ground up! Raw! No, God! More retching noises came from behind the door. Dan slumped against the wall. 
Moogle McDougal's big brown eyes peered over his shoulder. Why does everything keep changing? he said. He put his head in his hands. When I was a kid, McDougal's was the best place in the world. Then I realized it was all plastic and sugar and fat, and I stopped going. But when Ben's daughter Carrie, Petrel's mother, was little, we went there a lot. Then I boycotted it because of the rainforests, and then came BSE and BIS and the pickets and the bankruptcies, and it was gone. I hadn't thought about it in years. But when I saw that big red M, all the grown-up stuff just fell away, and I was a kid again. But Miss Rack in there doesn't know any of this. She only knows that beef will kill you. He raised his head. His eyes were wet. I'm sorry. I'm all mixed up about McDougal's. But let me tell you, your food is damn good. Thank you, said Garth. But just between you and me, Dan, what I do here isn't McDougal's. Not really. My dad tried so hard to recreate their recipes, but since he died, I've gotten a little more relaxed. Now I just try to make the best food I can. Mind you, I think the original McDougal's idea, good food served fast in a friendly atmosphere, is a good one. The corporation lost sight of that goal, but I've tried to be true to it. Rack threw open the door. A thread of spittle drooped from the corner of her mouth to the tip of her left horn. Her intense blue eyes were rimmed with red. I hate you, she said without preamble. I'm sorry about the hamburgers, said Dan. I didn't know. Of course you didn't know. Tears made little runnels in the dirt on her face. You don't know because you don't listen, and you don't listen because you don't care. You're just like Mom and Dad. You want an obedient little robot, and you hate me. Why don't you just let me go? I love you, honey, and your parents love you, too. That's bolus! Garth didn't recognize the word, but there was no mistaking the force with which it was hurled. Then she growled, lowered her head like a bull, and charged between the two men, headed for the door. Dan grabbed at the tail of her shirt, but the greasy, tattered fabric tore in his hands and she got away. Garth was faster than Dan, though, and managed to get hold of her arm. She squirmed in his grasp, wiry and lithe and surprisingly strong. The two of them tussled for a moment, rotating around their common center. Then she twisted and hit him in the face with her left horn. Both of them cried out in surprise and pain at the contact, and Garth let go. As Rax spun away, Garth found himself between her and the door. Dan was moving in, arms spread. Blocked on two sides, Rack gave a sound halfway between a growl and a sob, turned, and ran through the door labeled Employees Only. The two men followed as quickly as they could. The kitchen was as modern as the public areas of the restaurant were nostalgic. Over the years, Garth had pulled out the mechanistic McDougal's assembly line and replaced it with the latest and short-order cookery, all gleaming steel and duron. It was a place of hot metal and sharp edges, with no room for a distraught teenager. "'Get out of my kitchen, young lady,' said Garth. In response, she grabbed a knife from a nearby cutting board and waved it at him. "'Frag off, you boomer!' she said. Bits of onion flew from the blade. "'Petrol Amanda Wisniewski!' Dan yelled. "'You put that knife down this instant!' "'No!' she yelled back and reversed the blade, pointed it at her own belly under its grimy rags. "'Let me go or I'll hurt myself!' For a moment, the three of them stood frozen. Rack's eyes, red and wet, darted between the two men. Dan's mouth hung open, disbelieving, tormented. Garth shifted his weight from foot to foot, watching for an opening. 
The oven hissed, and there was a distractingly delicious smell from the french fry vat. Dan was the first to break the tableau. He stepped forward, slowly, his hands held out in front of him. Rack, honey, please, put the knife down. I promise I'll take you back home if that's what you want. You still aren't listening, she sobbed. I don't want to go home. I squeezed tight, face twisted like a towel. She began to slowly double over with tears. Her grip on the knife loosened. Dan moved in, reaching for the knife, but as his hand touched hers, her eyes snapped open and she clutched the knife again. Dan grabbed her wrist, tried to wrench the knife away. Rack raged incoherently, and Dan gasped for air as they struggled. He was bigger, but she was wiry and energetic. Their shoes made scuffing noises on the red tile floor. "'Watch it!' cried Garth, but it was too late. Rack twisted, driving Dan's elbow into the handle of the french fry basket. Hot fat splashed onto the grill and immediately burst into flame. Garth stared, horrified, as the fire spread quickly to the grease trap at the back of the grill. An alarm began to sound. A woman's voice, synthetic but with a compelling note of hysteria, calling, Fire! Fire! over and over in English, Spanish, and Vietnamese. Get out! Garth yelled over the alarm as he backed toward the door. If you're in here when the extinguisher goes off, you might suffocate! Dan and Rack were still wrestling over the knife. Rack's eyes were shut tight again. She didn't seem to have heard. A pained look came over Dan's face as he clamped down hard on her wrist, squeezing and squeezing until she cried out and tossed her head, catching Dan in the chin with the horn at the back of her skull. He gasped with pain, but kept increasing the pressure. Finally, with a spasm, Rack's hand opened and the knife rang on the floor. Dan gathered her up in his arms and charged for the door. Seeing them coming, Garth backed up as quickly as he could, but the two of them plowed into him just as he reached the door. They all tumbled through, Dan and Rack landing on top of Garth. The door swung shut just as the extinguisher roared into life, filling the kitchen with a cold, smothering fog. The three of them lay in a stunned heap for a moment. Icy vapors drifted under the kitchen door and crawled along the floor, dissipating as they went. Finally, Garth was able to roll out from under the other two and struggled to his feet. His backside ached, and he was bleeding a little where the girl had gored him, but other than that, he seemed to be in one piece. Rack sat up, sobbing, and Dan held her shoulders. Hush, hush, he said. It's all right. You hurt me, she said. I had to. Why didn't you just leave me? You could have smothered. I would never leave you. Never, never. Garth pushed through the door, waving chill tendrils of fog away with his hat. The grill and the hood above it were blackened, but didn't appear to be damaged. Any food that had been exposed to the extinguisher should probably be thrown out, but that looked to be just a few sacks of potatoes and onions. The freezer full of beef hummed contentedly. The door thumped behind him, and Dan appeared at his elbow. How bad is it? he asked. Not too bad. A little steel wool and elbow grease, and I'll be back up and running in a day or two. There was another thump. But I have to recharge the fire extinguisher. That's expensive. I have insurance, but there's a $4,000 deductible. A sullen voice came from behind them. I can pay it. Garth and Dan both turned around. Rack stood in the door, head down, shoulders slumped. I'm sorry, said Garth. I said I can pay it. I've been saving up for another pair of horns. She gestured at the sides of her head. You don't have to do that, said Garth. I'm going to, okay? 
Her blue eyes flashed for a moment under the stringy bangs, then returned to the floor. Anyway, I don't think Grandpa Dan would let me get any more horns. The old man's face melted. Does that mean you're going to stay with me? At that, she looked up. Yeah, for a while. But you have to listen to me. Really listen. And give me some air, or the deal's off. Very well, he replied. It's a deal. He held out his hand. She took it and shook it, both faces solemn. Then he gathered her up into a hug, smiling and crying. Garth thought the girl's face also lost a bit of its sullen expression. I love you more than anything, pet, Dan mumbled into her shoulder. She pulled back, blue eyes hard. It's still Rack. Rack, then. But I still love you. Her face twisted with embarrassment. Yeah, she said. Dan's smile showed he understood that that was the best he was going to get for now. I'm sorry about the fire, Dan said to Garth. Is there anything we can do to help? Well, I have to clean up the place. You can help with that. Garth got out buckets and sponges, and the three of them rolled up their sleeves. And that was our story. I'll admit it, I am a fast foodaholic. I love McDonald's. Alex loves it too. We're both McNuggets men. I'm not proud of this. I'm not going to defend anyone that the food is good for you, or whether it's even really food. But it is satisfying. It is easy. And there's a certain comfort in its unambitious consistency. For better or worse, my particular world, maybe yours too, is one where the ancient bedrock of home-cooked meals and small community and neighbors helping neighbors, where none of these are taken for granted. The landscape is shifting under us all the time. That's why I think we need science fiction. It's not a new idea, this theory that as society changes faster and faster, we need new ways of thinking ahead, of imagining not just the problems, but the solutions, and the human connections to them. I first read about it from Asimov, but it goes all the way back through mythology. Literature is how cultures dream. It's how they work things out and stay sane. In a society hurtling as fast into the future as ours is, we need science fiction to keep us sane. Short stories are the REM cycle. They're the vivid dreams, the snapshots that are original and strange and creative and wonderful. As I said in the Metacast last week, this is my last episode as Escape Pod's producer. Merle Lafferty's taking over. I'm not vanishing off the earth. I'm hoping to keep narrating stories from time to time. Maybe even host once or twice if Murr is willing to put up with me. Anyone who wants to keep up with me, I'm SF Ely on Twitter, and my Gmail is SF Ely too. I'm going to be focusing on some software stuff. I've been doing a lot of programming lately, and I have a project or two that, if I can get them to take off, you might hear about someday. But I think, apart from my children, Escape Pod is the work I'm likely to remain proudest of. I started it for fun. This began simply because I enjoyed reading things out loud. Everything else followed on that, and it didn't even occur to me until I'd been doing it for a year or so that, yeah, stories matter. This matters. How many of us today are engineers or scientists or architects or artists or anything because of the stories that picked us up when we were kids? I've gotten a lot of email from so many of you. And I'm horrible about writing back, and I'm sorry. It's partly because I'm weird about praise. When people are too nice to me, I have trouble wrapping my head around it. But I'll tell you that I am proud of this. Escape Pod is five years old today. 
if we've put one new idea into one mind, if my work made anybody, anywhere, excited about something that they hadn't thought of before, then I've changed the world. It's that simple. I didn't have to be important to do this, or even that ambitious or that confident. Anyone can change the world. You can change it. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please do tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link on our site, escapepod.org. I kind of feel silly saying that after vanishing for a couple of months, but Murr needs to pay authors too. So please, your support is very much appreciated. Also check out our sister podcasts, Podcastle for Fantasy and Pseudopod for Horror, both of their .org domains, and both totally amazing. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org, and they have my lasting thanks. Our special closing song this week, it's not pod safe, but this is my last show. I hope you can respect me in the morning. I cleared this with Murr first. I said, if the Japanese lawyers come after you, send them to me. The song is Blue by Yoko Kano from the Cowboy Bebop anime soundtrack. This is my absolute favorite song. It moves me to tears every time I hear it, and it moves me for some of the same reasons I care so much about science fiction. People seem to think I'm kidding when I say that Yoko Kano is one of the greatest living composers. I'm not. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation is not really a quotation. It's from me. I want you to think about this. I did this. I made Escape Pod. And I'm not anybody special. You can change the world. If you have something to say, say it. If you wake up tomorrow and you want to make something, make it. Don't wait until the time is right and you can get it perfect. The time's right now. You don't need anyone's permission. Just start doing it. And you'll be surprised when the world tells you, Hey, that was pretty good. Murr will be back next week. I love you all. Have fun. Deep 
Just a dream, you know, that's never ending. 